I'm certain you've all heard of AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is a support group designed to help people overcome alcoholism through a 12-step process and accountability. It also features appealing to a higher power to help you through, although that higher power could be anything. But you may not know that Alcoholics Anonymous had real Christian and biblical roots. The founders of AA, Bill Wilson and Dr. Robert Smith, They met together in something called the Oxford Group in the 1930s. And the Oxford Group was a Christian fellowship aimed at helping people live out the Christian life. Wilson was an alcoholic who lost his career on Wall Street because of his drinking. But he found lasting change and victory over his sin in in this Oxford Group. The Oxford Group had some key tenets. All people are sinners. All sinners can be changed. Confession is a prerequisite to change. They believed ultimately only God could change a person, but they understood how God uses others as the instruments of his change. So they advocated frequent small group meetings where they would confess their sins to one another, pray for one another, hold one another accountable, and mutually help each other to to surrender to God. You can see in many ways how that, in a sense, mirrors what they do today in AA meetings without the explicit appeal to God and and mention of sin, though. Indeed, the Oxford group proved to be too overtly Christian for the founders of AA. They believed alcoholism was more a medical problem than a sin problem, and they weren't that concerned with evangelizing people, and so they did eventually break away from the Oxford group, and they formed their own Alcoholics Anonymous which allowed people to appeal to any higher power for strength or for hope. But if you think back to that Oxford group, I think they were onto something. In a society hedged in by shame and secrecy, Oxford members engaged in a radical honesty about their sins and temptations. They understood from Scripture that sin thrives in the darkness. But when it's brought out into the light, when it's confessed before God and, and even others, That goes a long way in diminishing its power in your life. Some people didn't like this, especially back then. One critic of the Oxford group said, quote, All that business about telling one's sins in public, it's spiritual nudism, end quote. But through their practices and guided by biblical principles, people were finding lasting change and victory through the Oxford group. The Oxford Group is just one example of something we call accountability. The word accountability is not used in the Bible, but it's a term we give to the concept of merely helping one another run the Christian race of faith. God designed us to grow together, cooperatively, not in isolation. That's something we've been studying for many Sundays here We've taken a little time out from our regular study through Colossians to reflect on these issues surrounding the church. What is the church? What's it supposed to be? What's the church supposed to do? Well, the church is the body of Christ. It's the community of the redeemed. It's composed of all those for whom Jesus died to save. And they're all knit together, gathered together in in a new spiritual family. And that which divides those in the world, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, are all overcome in the church. The blood of Christ is is thicker than all. We're united by faith in him as our Lord and Savior. And in the church, we get a a preview of the kingdom where you have all the redeemed from all the nations living in harmony with God and with one another as intended. 
And in addition, we found that the Lord Jesus has given spiritual gifts to every member of this family. This is how the body is, is built up in maturity and love, by this mutual service of one another. We're not just trying to take, but you're giving. And before salvation, like those in the world, we were primarily consumed and obsessed with just serving ourselves, seeing our own needs met above all else. We pursued our own interests and desires above all. That type of self-centeredness only divides people. But in Christ's church, we're called to consider others more important than ourselves, to lay down our lives, to show real sacrificial love for others, just like the Lord did for us. And so we're to be a body where everyone is more focused on serving one another. And when that actually happens, not only are all the needs still met, but you find a real environment of peace, stability, endurance, and a powerful witness to the watching world. So these are just some of the aspects of the church's identity and function we've been considering for a few weeks. And last time we we spent a little time narrowing in even further on and how exactly the Lord expects us to serve one another. There are many ways, there's many needs, but we found the church should have a, a special emphasis on meeting the spiritual needs of one another. And technically, you can go to your, your regular family, your, your regular friends when it comes to meeting just practical needs. You don't need the church for that. But only in the church will you find those who can help you spiritually, who can meet your spiritual needs. And so a huge dimension of our mutual service to one another should be you know, seeking and meeting these spiritual needs of the body. And so we found that all believers, not just pastors, But all believers are called to admonish one another, encourage one another, and help one another. These spiritual works of service, sharpening one another into Christ's image. And now with our time today, we're going to give one final message here on the church. Helping us think through these issues pertaining to the church. And this time, I want to drill down even further on on what it really looks like to admonish, encourage, and help one another. And practically speaking, it's, it's really addressing this thing called accountability. We have found that we must not treat the church like an event. Many people do. They, they come, they spectate, they observe, they leave, and that's it. No personal involvement. But that was not the Lord's will for his church. It was meant to be a, a spiritual family where people are investing in the lives of one another, caring for one another, to, to serve them, to build them up spiritually. And living that out is going to involve this, this thing called accountability. That is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a necessary thing. But I know for a lot of, a lot of people, accountability is a scary thing. It's a confusing thing. It's a difficult thing. And for this reason, I feel the need to do my part and give you some instruction on biblical accountability. Just to further expose how the Lord expects us to be involved in the lives of others. Now, I mentioned again, come January, we're launching into some small groups or growth groups. And accountability relationships is meant to be a, a big feature in these groups over time. That's something we want to foster. But for that to happen, people need to be informed on what accountability is, what it's like, what it's not like why it's needed, what biblical role it fills, and then like, how do you do it? 
Now, I realize many of you may have never received such instruction. In fact, I'll, I'll take a wager that the vast majority of you have probably never heard a single sermon on biblical accountability. But it is biblical. It is necessary. So let's change that now. Now, kind of like when we studied spiritual gifts a few weeks ago, I want to help you by, by answering some key questions on accountability. We're going to mimic that approach. And so let's just try and answer seven questions about biblical accountability. Just to help you rightly help others run their race of faith. Seven questions about biblical accountability so that you might help others run their race of faith. Let's go through these now. First, what is biblical accountability? What is biblical accountability? Let's just start off with what accountability is in general. Accountability refers to just accepting responsibility for your actions, being answerable for your behavior. To hold someone accountable means to to require them to give an account for the things they've done and, and the reasons they did them. And today, for example, we want our government officials and uh, corporate officers to be accountable, to give an account for their actions and their motives. That's a good thing. And this whole notion of accountability is based on the existence of appropriate and inappropriate behavior. And those in the world, even though they're not really living by God's standard, they still have some standard of right and wrong. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. And so it's still wrong for a CEO of a nonprofit to redirect funds to himself. It's still wrong for a state official to give a work bid to this company because they gave him a kickback. And such people should be made to answer for their inappropriate behavior. Now in the church, we too have a standard of right and wrong behavior. This standard is defined by God himself. It's encoded in scripture. And it's right for Christians to be held accountable to that standard. Now, that being said, I have to clarify, we know that as Christians, we are not saved by our obedience to some standard of right behavior. We know all too well our capacity for wrong behavior given our our sin nature. And that's why we follow Christ. He's the one who came and died on the cross and rose again, precisely because we, we violate the standard so often. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven of all of our wrong behavior. And so we are justified or made right with God just by faith in him alone, not by behavior. And thereafter, though, after you come to place your faith in Christ, you're raised to newness of life. And we're called to live out that newness. We're given God's spirit to enable us to walk in his ways. And so that's when this thing called the, the Christian walk begins, the Christian life And that's not a life of of just trying to be good, do good, to get into heaven. We live a life by faith, but being saved and being raised in newness of life, it's to God's glory and our good to walk in newness of life. So now we walk the Christian walk, and in that walk, there is a standard of right and wrong behavior. That which honors the Lord, that which does not. That which is loving to God and others, and that which is not. And so what then is accountability in the church? It's simply holding one another to Christ's standard of godliness, of right living. Accountability is where Christians are answerable for their behavior as those who've made a claim 
to follow Jesus as Lord, to walk in his ways. Now, if you have someone who claims to be a Christian, but completely turns their back on their profession of faith and just goes deep into the darkness, living in unrepentant sin and rebellion, well, that person will ultimately be held accountable through something called church discipline. The Lord himself taught in Matthew 18. The church doesn't wield the sword, so it's not like we punish those who go away and no longer walk the walk. But the Lord himself directed us to remove the unrepentant one from the assembly so that his reproach does not fall on all. That's a necessary form of accountability, right? However, that form of accountability is not really what we're talking about here in this message. We're mostly talking about Christians who they may have veered from the way, they've fallen into sin, but, but they are repentant. They, they love the Lord, that they want to walk in his ways. It's just that they know the weakness of their own flesh. They know how, how prone they are to wander, and to fall into sin. And so what that person really needs is not punitive accountability, but a type of proactive accountability, a type of supportive accountability. You know, unlike church discipline, no judgment is involved. There's nothing heavy-handed about this type of accountability. Rather, in love, it's where a brother or sister comes alongside them just to help them run their race, to help them overcome the sin that they're already wrestling with. It's this type of a proactive, loving, supportive accountability that the church needs more of. You may wonder, is this type of accountability even biblical? You often hear people say like, hey, only, only God can judge me. And I'm, I'm really only accountable to him. And, you know, that's true. Ultimately, of course that's true. God is our maker. God is our judge. We will give an account only to him. Romans 14, 12 says each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So, of course, we're only truly accountable to God. I'm not your judge. You don't answer to me. Only Christ is your Lord. However, you do realize that the Lord himself wants us in this spiritual family to be very concerned for the spiritual well-being of one another. He wants us to help one another give a good account to him. We're all in, in one body. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says each of the members should have this, the same care for one another. We should show the same care for one another. And Romans 12.5 adds that we who are many are one body. And then it says individually members one of another. We are members one of another. Since we're all attached to Christ, that means also that we're all attached to one another. And so we're meant to be invested in, in the holy living of, of the whole body. It's only to our, our interest, to the Lord's interest, that, that we seek the holiness of every member. So if you see a brother or sister wandering or struggling, we should happily in love want to get involved just to help them. And likewise, we should happily open up ourselves, inviting others to, to help us when we have moments of, of weakness. You are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper. Accountability these days in the world seems very adversarial. 
right? Republicans want to hold Democrats accountable. Democrats want to hold Republicans accountable because you don't want to let your enemy get away with anything. It's an adversarial spirit. But that, that's not the spirit of accountability in the church. It's about inviting spiritual friends into your life to help you walk the walk. You've professed faith in Christ. You've pledged your allegiance to him and you've entered his way to live as a Christian. But you know your flesh is weak. Your sin desires may be strong. And, and if you go it alone, there's a good chance you're going to stumble. But this is where biblical accountability comes in, which is simply about helping one another on the way. Accountability like this is an expression of love and care for one another. The Lord himself has programmed into the DNA of the church, something we've been learning for for weeks. Let's ask a second question now. What is the goal of accountability? What is the goal of accountability? The goal of this type of accountability is, is pretty simple. Spiritual formation, maturity, growth in Christ-likeness. The word for this is just sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. At salvation, we're made perfect in position. But thereafter, God deems that we would be progressively made perfect in practice. That's just sanctification. We're just growing up now into the the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Accountability, it's all about speaking the truth in love to others to this end. Also, another very familiar verse, Colossians 1.28, says, We proclaim him, Christ teaching every man and admonishing every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You know, last week we talked about this admonishing one another as a form of warning and correction to the unruly. But, but scripture doesn't paint the picture of us being the, the sin police, just constantly running around, rebuking people for the slightest infraction. We're not to be like the nun who's just roaming the classroom aisles and and slapping the hands of the kid, any kid who acts out in the slightest. Again, this accountability is not about punishment, but it's a way of of helping others grow into Christ's image. For example, husbands who are here, how many of you need to grow in the area of loving your wives as Christ loved the church? I'd say all of you. All of us who has, you know, arrived in that area. And this accountability we're talking about is not aimed at at finding people who fall short and then just heaping guilt and shame on them. It's rather about just being open and honest with the areas you you struggle with and then recruiting allies into your life to help you grow in Christ. I mean, is that your goal as a Christian? You do desire to be more conformed to Christ's image. And if so, why wouldn't you want an ally, a spiritual friend who's just concerned with helping you get there. Let's take this thought further. Question three, why is accountability needed? Why is accountability needed? I've already alluded to it. I just want to elaborate on it though. In scripture, sin is frequently associated with the darkness and secrecy. Like mold. Sin thrives in the darkness. And it seems to grow the most when no one's paying attention to it. 
An environment of secrecy really fosters sin. It's just part of our sin nature. There's a study done at Newcastle University where they went to a cafeteria and they lined the cafeteria walls with posters of just human eyes staring at the people. They surrounded the cafeteria and they found that thereafter, the students were twice as likely to clean up after themselves. Just the subtle notion that they were being watched improved their behavior. I think we know how that goes. We know that on the flip side, dark deeds are most often done in secret. And why is that? It's because of the deceptiveness of your own flesh. Flesh understands that if you're going to bask in sin, you've got to shut down your conscience. You've got to ignore God and the conscience he gave you, which convicts you of wrongdoing. That's not so hard to do. It's a bit harder, though, to shut down the consciences of people around you. And so if you're going to participate in the deeds of darkness, you know, right out there in the open, there's a good chance another person, even another Christian, they're going to see you and they're going to say something about it. They're going to do something to stop you. So, you know, our flesh says it's just better not to tell them. It's better just keep this to ourselves. Do the deed in secret. This is how our deceptive flesh works. And the prophet Jeremiah was right when he said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And the apostle Paul confirmed this notion. He says this in Ephesians 5, 8. He says, for you were, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And he says in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So we just know that the dark deeds are done in secret. We can't enter that dark space. We're called out into the light. And the deeds of darkness flourish behind closed doors. And so you have to realize how readily you will deceive yourself to keep your little pet sin behind closed doors. Your flesh will help you come up with a million excuses why you shouldn't talk to others about your struggles and and get help. But if you keep your sin struggles in the darkness, they're only going to grow. Instead, you need to shine the light on them. You need to give your sin no little safe hiding spot in a corner of your heart. Like Paul goes on in the next verse, verse 13 of Ephesians 5. He says, but all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. You know, as Christians, we don't, we don't revel in the darkness anymore. We want to walk in the light as Christ himself is in the light. But we're aware that our own sinful flesh is, is still constantly trying to deceive us and, and just kind of pull us back into the darkness. And so we should be all the more ready to recruit allies, give them access to the dark corners of our heart, to expose our, our secret sins to our friends. I mean, shining the light on your sin like this is a huge means of overcoming it. Now, of course, we need to ultimately expose and confess our dark sins to God, right? And David learned this lesson. He says in Psalm 32, Verse 3 and 5, he said, this was after his sin with Bathsheba. He said, when I kept silent about, about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
Then in verse 5, he says, But I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. And we praise God that because of Christ's cross, all of our sins, and even our dark sins, have been paid for, and we can be forgiven of all. That being said, though, you might ask, okay, well, why, why would we need to go further than this? Why would we need to go beyond confessing our sins to God and, and then confess our sins to other people? I mean, God is the one who sees what we're doing. We're, we only answer to him. We're only accountable to him. And once again, yes, that's true. But are you not seeing the pattern yet of, of how God designed this thing called the church to be his instruments of accountability, his hands and feet of accountability? God knows how deceiving sin is and how quick we are to deceive ourselves and ignore God's watchful presence. It's just too easy for all of us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's especially the case for those who are spiritually weaker or immature. And so just ask, you know, how strong are you? How much do you really trust yourself and your own strength to never be deceived by sin? I wouldn't make that bet. And God knows we all have that moments of, of those moments of weakness. But if you're all alone in your moment of spiritual weakness or great temptation, you have no spiritual family around you, what then? Like Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, Woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Instead, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the other will lift up his companion. You see, this is the need accountability fills. There's another verse we've been using all the time, Hebrews 3.13. But it's worth it. It says, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We referenced that verse for several weeks. It's such a key verse. It prescribes this daily one another practice, this daily encouraging of one another. That's how often the Lord thinks we need others speaking into our lives, encouraging us. And this encouragement is a a part, it's a function of accountability. It involves being open and honest with others about the areas of your life. You're you're prone to hardening. You're prone to falling into and, and becoming hardened. You know, it just boils down to how seriously you take your sanctification, your growth, and godliness. And accountability is necessary in God's design because as we've been learning for many weeks, there's such a huge corporate cooperative dimension to our spiritual growth. Just we're never meant to grow alone. That includes just overcoming your sin. Well, let's get into some practical questions now. At least I should say more practical. Question four, what does accountability look like? What does it actually look like in practice? There are two main passages we use to kind of define the practice of accountability. The first is Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. You can turn there, but you know, we're moving fast through these passages. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. You know, after a lengthy section explaining the supremacy of Christ, and the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. 
the author of Hebrews starts getting into application. And here we see a major application, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, if you're going to run the race without wavering, if you're going to hold fast the confession, if you're not going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, first and foremost, we've learned you must not forsake the assembly. You can't stop assembling together. You can picture a soldier deserting his post because he's scared. And not only is that a shame to him, but that endangers the other soldiers who are counting on him. And so it goes in the church when people desert or they're just habitually absent. It weakens the whole body. An obvious prerequisite for accountability then is just assembling together, being together often. But you can see in this passage, our assembling together has a clear purpose. He says it's to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and to encourage one another. Those two thoughts are just parallel. They speak of provoking other people, but in a good sense. We're talking just sharpening others. We know the verse, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I mean, wouldn't you say that there's a greater love we need to aspire to? And there are, there are good deeds the Lord has for us to walk in. But we can be just lazy, undisciplined, or just outright selfish. But God wants us to assemble together, often, habitually, in this spiritual family, that we might be just provoking one another, stirring up one another to, to these ends. That's a good thing. I need that. And we're called to do this more and more, he says, as the day draws near, as the world gets darker and darker. We need this type of encouraging accountability more and more. And so you add to this, this encouraging one another and assembling together. You add to this, the instruction of James 5.16, the other key verse, James 5.16. Again, I'll just read it. It says, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to hash out that passage in detail. Good news, though, I did preach through James. So you can download James 5, 13 through 18 if you want like the long version of that. What you need to know here is James is not actually talking about physical illness in this section, but soul sickness, you might say. He's talking about people who are spiritually weak and weary. They're downtrodden. They're depressed. And the healing they need is in their soul. They need to be encouraged. Now, if you want the proof of that, you're going to have to go download that James 5 message. But now, the source of this person's spiritual depression, it may just be living in a fallen world. It's a broken world. There's plenty of suffering. It can make people depressed. Or it might be the person's own sin. They've been walking in the darkness and, well, that's going to make you spiritually depressed if you don't repent. The good news though, as James says earlier, if if this person has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. I mean, Jesus already paid it all. And so the elders of the church are called to minister Christ to the spiritually weak brother 
with prayer that he might be restored and lifted up. But then, you know, here in verse 16, James sets his sights on everyone. Everyone in the church should partake in this spiritual work, he says, of confessing your sins to one another and then praying for one another. Now, this mutual confession of sin is not, it's not salvific. We don't have the power to save anyone. We don't have the power to forgive anyone. Forgiveness belongs to the Lord alone. But God has promised total forgiveness to those who repent and turn to Christ. Look, this mutual confession then, it doesn't look like finding someone to be your priest who absolves you when you feel bad for sinning. But it looks like finding a fellow sinner, sharing your sin struggles, and then together going to Jesus in prayer for forgiveness, for restoration, for renewal, for strength. The Lord wants us to do this thing together. There are going to be times when you are spiritually weak. Maybe you've engaged in a a losing wrestling match with a particular sin. It's beaten you down. It's made you weary, a little depressed. You feel cold in your love for the Lord and others. You battle thoughts of doubt. But what if you had just a righteous man or woman in your life to whom you could confess your sin and your struggle? Who could then pray for you, intercede for you, encourage you? Do you think that would help you to grow and be restored? So what does biblical accountability look like? It looks like assembling together with trusted believers regularly. It looks like encouraging one another to love and good deeds. And it looks like mutual confession of sin and prayer. This is a form of of sin burden bearing that you and I desperately need in our lives. Now, question five here, how does accountability fail? How does accountability fail? Now, not everyone has had a great experience with Christian accountability. You might be quite apprehensive about this whole thing because you've been burned in the past. You know, by misguided Christians, accountability can quickly turn sour. How does that happen? Well, for one, a lack of, of love and grace. An overly harsh, critical, and adversarial environment will thwart accountability. You know, if people don't view one another in love as their spiritual family member, if they don't have the spiritual interests of one another in mind, if they're instead just prideful and self-righteous, accountability is going to fail. You're going to have someone in a little group, maybe they've been broken by their sin, but they need help. So they finally just kind of share their struggle. Then everyone else just kind of turns on them, judges them, criticizes them, complains about them. Well, that's not going to help that person, and they will likely never open up again. Right? A harsh, critical spirit will just suck the oxygen out of any accountability group. On the other side of the spectrum, though, you know, a lack of admonishment or a lack of zeal for the Lord will neuter an accountability group. You can imagine a group of guys that come together every week, and they all just, each week, they just confess how they have sinned, they've fallen, they've compromised over and over again, the same sin over and over again each week. Confession alleviates their guilty conscience for another week. They feel better, they go, all happens again. They come back and they confess all over again. But there's no reproof, there's no repentance, there's no growth. 
That's not accountability. That's just a, a weak form of, of therapy. Any accountability setting that forfeits an expectation of change and growth will just quickly devolve into a bad self-help group. Another big threat to accountability is an emphasis on law over grace. Accountability groups can quickly become rule-centered instead of gospel-centered, and the goal becomes just moral improvement by laws, and more laws are created to hedge one another in, and fellow members become like Pharisees, just checking in to make sure you're towing the line with this acceptable standard of behavior. But don't forget what we learned back in Colossians 2.23, that the commandments and teachings of men, which include self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, are of no value when it comes to fleshly indulgence. You know, the law only incites our flesh. It has no power to change us. So accountability groups fail when they lose sight of Christ and his gospel as the power for people changing. When someone is is struggling with sin and losing, they don't need more rules. They need grace in Christ. They need to go back to the well of the gospel and drink deeply. They need the reminder, our, our ultimate standing before God is not based on our performance. It's based on Christ's performance. But he succeeded. He, he paid for it all on the cross. We need that reminder. At the same time, we have total forgiveness in Christ. We need to see afresh that, that Christ alone has opened up the way for us to be reconciled to God. And when we do fall, we must repent, turn away, turn back to the Lord. We need these reminders. We must Colossians 3.1, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And we must, Colossians 3.2, set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. These are the, the types of gospel truths. We need to be speaking to ourselves every day, but in those moments of weakness, you're not doing that. You're not being reminded of what is true. And because we're often weak, well, we could use others to speak it to us. To, to tell us, to encourage us, to remind us. But any accountability group that doesn't operate on the sufficiency of, of the gospel and the truth of God's word to help people change is going to be doomed to failure. On the flip side, though, let's ask real quick here, question six, how does accountability succeed? How does accountability succeed? Well, just on the flip side, accountability succeeds when when Christ and his gospel lie at the center of our mutual encouragement, admonishment, confession, and prayer. Every Christian is to be a minister of the gospel of grace. That will lead to accountability that's saturated in the love of God and mercy and compassion. And accordingly, accountability groups succeed when when at least some members have a basic knowledge of the word of God. And the source of our mutual encouragement and admonishment is scripture, right? I mean, how else are we supposed to be biblically convicting and correcting and encouraging one another? We wield the word to do all this. And that means there, there should be at least one mature member of any accountability group who's well-versed in the word, who can lead others to the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. And there are other dispositions that are necessary for for successful accountability. I mean, humility 
is key. You, you must be humble and, and honest about your sin struggles. You have to own up to the ways in which you fall short. And likewise, a radical honesty is required. Some people will share just a little, little tiny parcel of information, but they hold back really the lion's share of their sin struggle. They're just playing games. They just want to save face before others. They, they want to look not so bad in front of others. But really, what's the point of that? Of course, people do that because they fear rejection and shame and judgment. That's why there's another necessary requirement for accountability, and that is trust. Accountability is based on a, a trust relationship where you have complete confidence that a fellow brother or sister has your best interest in mind. They're not going to gossip about you. They're not going to shame you. They, they just want to help you, to intercede for you. And of course, that in turn requires you actually care about the other person and they care for you. And so mutual care, concern, and love in the Lord are just essential requirements for accountability to flourish. You know, I hope our time this morning going through these questions on accountability is, is maybe change some minds. Accountability is both biblical and necessary. And so think about your own life. Spiritually, th- spiritually speaking, are you where you want to be? Are you where you should be? Are you as mature, as holy as you should be? Maybe you've been a Christian for, for 10 or 20 years. Are you still wrestling with the same sins and losing? Are you not growing? Are you stagnant? Are you coasting? Is your life suffering as a result, yielding bitter relationships and a lack of peace and kind of a spiritual melancholy? Is that all okay with you? Do you think it's okay with God? If that at all describes you, it's time for a change. And I hope all of these messages on the church have impressed upon you just the vital role of the church in helping you change and in helping you grow. If you find yourself spiritually weak, chances are you've been running alone with no one to pick you up, with no one to watch your back, with no one to pray for you. But consider today how it might be time to just call in some godly reinforcements to help you wage war against sin and hold fast to Christ. Along these lines, let's just finish our time with one final practical question Question seven, how do you get accountability started? How do you get accountability started? Now, these accountability relationships we've been describing, they don't typically form overnight. This level of trust takes time. It takes work to build a spiritual friendship. But look, you've got to start somewhere, right? You can't just keep doing nothing and not investing in others. So first, don't be a spectator at church. Don't be the person who comes late, leaves early, never engages, and just stays alone. Don't be that person. Second, take steps of care and concern toward others. Just find a few other people in church. Just begin to build a spiritual friendship. Get out of your comfort zone and just talk to others. And then third, be intentional with the time you spend with others. You have to purpose to have spiritual conversations with these friends in your life. They don't happen naturally. Our flesh won't let that happen. But purpose it. Ask about their life. Ask about their struggles. Ask how you can intercede for them. And then likewise, open up. You share about 
just the sin, the secret sin in your heart. That trust is formed. You can gain that confidence and then, well, share that they might pray for you and speak truth into your life and remind you of that one verse you forgot about that the Spirit uses to convict you. And then it just, it just grows from there. And then finally, maybe you do need to consider joining one of these small groups or discipleship groups in the new year. These might seem like training wheels at first, but as we learned from Jay Wetker at our men's retreat, you know, the small group settings are like trellises on which the vine of peer discipleship can grow. Sometimes we just need some help getting started, getting out of the gates. For a lot of people, this, this whole discussion is just so awkward. They just need a little help getting started, forming those relationships, meeting some people to spiritually befriend. And that will be taking place in just kind of a little early controlled environment in these small groups. So maybe you should consider joining. No matter what you do, though, I pray you, you leave resolved to heed the words of 2 Timothy 2, 22. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, in the Lord's design, the Christian life is all about running from, running toward, and running with. You have to be determined to run from sin. And you have to be determined to run toward righteousness. But if you're going to succeed and get there, you must also be determined to run with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so I pray we can be a church that runs together. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do pray you help us to be a church that runs together. That is your design and intention for your church. You saved us in Christ. You sent the Savior born of a virgin. We remember this time of year. Come to earth to live for us, to die for us, to redeem people who were extremely wayward in their behavior. We had no hope because of our desperate, uh, deceitful hearts. But you sent the Savior to come and die for us, to make us new, to give us new hearts, to set us on a new path. And you are now glorified as we willingly follow the Savior by faith, yet living out the way of righteousness. That's to your glory. It's to our good. But Lord, we need help. We still retain the flesh. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And this is why you have designed. We've learned for, for four weeks for us not to embark on that journey alone. You have saved us in a, in a body, a church, and how we need one another. Just impress that lesson deeply in our hearts through our, all of these messages together. And here today, the need for accountability, that you want us to walk in the light. And though difficult, that means exposing our dark, embarrassing sins to others who love us, who care about us, whom we are convinced want us to grow in Christ. And those people, though, are cherished friends. Help us to build those cherished spiritual friendships at this church where we can just truly be admonishing, encouraging, and helping one another grow in Christ. May this lead to some change for some people and growth in godliness. Be with us, and we thank you for all that we do have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.